Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Weekly Curio. You know that because you're hearing my voice, Tom is not with us today. He's out once again doing his theatrics in Edison Park, Illinois. However, we have a very special guest this week. We have with us the math magician, Ethan Brown. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Ethan was very kind to us uh, way back in 2012. He was one of our very first speakers at the first College of Curiosity conference that we held at the City Museum in St. Louis, Missouri. And if you're hearing this, and it's not yet September, I'd like to let you know that we are going back to the City Museum September 27th, 2014. This is not for a conference. This is just going to be a bunch of us climbing around on airplanes, fire engines in caves, having shoelaces made, and all that kind of a thing. So if you're interested in that, go to collegeofcuriosity.com and you'll see a link there. There's no extra charge for this. In fact, we have group rates at the City Museum, so it's actually cheaper to come with us. That said, Ethan... Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Ethan Brown. I'm going into 10th grade at Phillips Academy Andover in Massachusetts. And uh, as you mentioned, I am a mathematician. I've been doing a mental math stage show for the last four and a half years, maybe. And I've been going around to schools, libraries, conferences, trying to get people excited about math. That That's my main goal with all of what I've been doing. You said that you're going to Phillips Andover, which is probably the most sought-after high school in the entire country. One would assume that this makes you a fairly smart kid. So I have to ask you, is math just for smart kids? I think that it's really something that anyone can learn if they just put in practice and hard work. That's one of the messages I've been pushing now. What I do when I go to schools is I'll perform my show and then I'll teach the kids how to do everything that I just did. And I'll have fourth, fifth, sixth graders walking out of the classroom able to, uh, for instance, ask you what your birthday is and calculate the day of the week you were born on in their heads. Stuff that I do in my show, they can walk out and do as well. So it's all something I learned how to do it. I wasn't born with some gift. I just learned, practiced, and then I started performing it and trying to teach others as well. Well, so tell you what, I am not very good at math, and it's uh, not that I don't like math. I think math is beautiful. I am in awe of things like the quadratic equation and pi, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And my problem is is that simple arithmetic bogs me down. I, I lose my minus signs. I will write numbers backwards. Maybe it's a form of dyslexia. I have no idea. What I've noticed is that in math, there's so many different branches and areas of the subject. I mean, math is kind of taught as just working with numbers and arithmetic, and you start working up towards algebra, geometry, calculus, but it's really so much more. I've used this analogy in my talks, and I like it a lot. It's basically that math is islands of knowledge in a sea of ignorance, (laughs) so... Uh, you have your algebra, your geometry, your calculus. You also have things like game theory, number theory, combinatorics, analysis. There's graph theory, whole bunch of different things that you might not have even heard of in school. And mm-hmm. all of these islands are just out there and you can explore each one. And what we need to start doing, in my opinion, is start kind of building bridges between those islands and connect them together. So a student of mathematics, you can start to find, ooh, I like probability, for example. Mm -hmm. And then uh, maybe that can help you start to enjoy some of the other areas by 
looking at it from a probability perspective. Yeah, somebody once told me in college that if you were really good at math and had gone up through calculus and everything, once you got to statistics, you were a little bit of at a disadvantage because that was such a different way of thinking about math. Yeah, I actually was planning to start with a probability statistics related problem. Oh, let's do it. You'll be able to see in there that kind of thing that you were just talking about. Uh, I'll explain the problem first. You have a room and you have some number of people inside that room. And you ask every person in the room what their birthday is. And the question is, how many people does it take for it to be more likely than not for there to be two people in the room sharing the same birthday? I, I think I know the answer because I read it somewhere, but I'll forget about that and I'll try to figure it out. And so the the goal here is more than likely, so a better than 50% chance. Yeah. You know, my first thought is, oh, well, there's 365 days in a year, about, Maybe yep. a little more, but we'll skip the leap years for now. So let's see. So half of that is where I would start. So that would be, what, 193? I think 180. See, I told you I'm terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, okay. I wrote this oh. on Wikipedia also. <laughs> Wikipedia said 182. I'm well, that helps back. too. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not good at the arithmetic part. But so, all right. So I'd say 182. And then I'm thinking, well, speaking instinctively and not going off of what I've read, I would say that you would need to be well over 100 anyway, like 125 or 130. And that's probably what the common answer is. If you do think about the problem that way, you'll think, okay, so or if you had like 400 people in the room, obviously 100% chance that two will have the same birthday. Whereas if you had just one person in the room, then you can't. So, <laughs> right. But if you went like super close, like if you went 365, you oh. could pull it off technically. But I mean, how likely is that for you to get every single person with a different birthday? That's right. not going to happen. Nope. If you had two people, then again, that's for both of them to have the same birthday. That's pretty unlikely. But the answer is... Pretty surprising, in my opinion. I know I wouldn't have guessed it. You need 23 people. Wow. 23. 23. Now, I, I realize I made a mistake in my thinking, which is that I was thinking, this guy's birthday is December 12th. How many people would we have to add in the room to find another December 12th? But that's not actually how it works, yeah. because it's anybody linking to anybody. So if you have two people... You've got a, a simple system of just two people. But if you add a third person, there's actually more combinations than just three. Yeah. And then it expands exponentially. And, I, and 23 For, apparently is the sweet yeah. spot. For 23 people, you actually have 253 pairings wow. of birthdays. You can actually figure that out by just saying, okay, first person, there's 22 other possibilities. And second person, there's 22. But if you don't include the first one, that's 21. You end up going down and it becomes like 23 plus 22 plus 21 plus 20 plus 19 all the way down to 1. Add those together, that's 253, and that's way bigger than 23. Yeah. Wikipedia lays out the calculation. Well, I think it's hard to explain over air how <laughs> I believe the actual calculation works. It's more visual, but you can see how factorial would play into it. But you figured it out, and okay, you're a smart kid, sure, but if you can teach other people how to do that, that means that it's a skill that's within everyone's reach. Well, I was in the same spot as you at first. When I heard the problem, I would have 
probably guessed in the hundreds, but it's just something that the human race did not evolve to understand statistics and probability. There was no need to in when we were cavemen, but when you get into a society like today's and you start getting faced with things like uh, you see at a casino, it says hmm. there's this new deal on blackjack or whatever. Or if you go to a roulette table, mm-hmm. every bet that you make has the same odds of success. If you're betting uh, on the same, numbers. Uh, same expected value, not the same odds. So yeah. uh, on average, you would lose the same amount of money if you made that bet for an infinite amount. Of, if you made it for an infinite amount of time, you'd come close to running out. But if you did it for, let's say, a day then you'd be losing on average the same amount. And you can calculate with each game. So if you were playing blackjack, you would lose on average a half a cent per every dollar bet that you would make. I mean, if you played for a while and you only lost $20, that's still pretty good. I mean, you just paid $20 to play a game for the afternoon. but it's like an entertainment fee. Yeah, but if you're trying to make money off of it, that's where probability will tell you that it's likely not going to happen. One of the things that was pointed out to me in Vegas, and I've been many, many, many times, is uh, it wasn't the winners who built all this stuff here. You know, uh, the the casinos are making money somehow. So Uh therefore, there is a way they're making money off your gambling. That means you will not be leaving there with more money than you came with. Exactly. The psychology, though, is fascinating. You you mentioned roulette earlier, and one of the things they started doing in the early 2000s was they would put a board up that would list the last 30 or 40 spins. Have you ever seen one of uh-huh. those? And I haven't gotten to see one, so I can't really because look around the casino enough. at my age, but <laughs> I've, I've heard of them, yes. So you've seen, you understand roulette, but it's... Yeah. So the board is interesting. It's just a bunch of numbers, black, red, black, red, every number, black, red, black, red. And then if there's a zero, that's in a different column. In the American roulette tables, you have two zeros. You have zero and zero, zero, which makes the odds of hitting any one number on the roulette table one in 37. Uh, In the European system, it's one in 36. So uh, you actually have a much better deal in Europe. But these boards are interesting because they'll show you, okay, so here's the last 50 spins of the wheel. This is negative information. It is not useful. It is only yeah. destructive. Tell me about that. I think that's something where people would look at that and they think to themselves, okay, so the last number was a 15, mm-hmm. so I'm going to not bet on 15 because it's it's not going to end up with 15 again. What are the odds of that? Right. But the odds of that are 1 in 38. It's <laughs> the same as yeah. <laughs> had it not rolled 15. It's like saying you're you're flipping a coin, you just flipped heads. Now it's definitely going to be tails this time. I mean, right. the odds don't change. It's in the fact, same thing, if right? You, if you flipped a coin nine times and it was heads every single time, the odds of getting heads on the 10th one are still 50-50. The coin doesn't remember those past rolls. And neither does a roulette table. That's right. In a perfect system. Now, with roulette wheels, it's even a little bit sneakier than that. Um, Because, let's face it, when you're dealing with pure math, you have an ideal system. You don't have any external factors. Now, with roulette wheels, and even with coins, your system's not ideal. And what used to happen with roulette wheels is, over time, they would develop a bias. And if you ever look at a roulette wheel, you'll notice the the order is not 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, up through 35. It varies. It does it in quadrants. And that was to help counteract this problem with bias, 
where if the wheel had a bias, it wouldn't be towards a certain range of numbers. It would be towards kind of a jumbling of numbers, like 3, 12, 20, you know. It wasn't something you could figure out. But some astute gamblers would notice the bias and then kind of gamble around those particular numbers in that quadrant where the ball happened to land more often. But the <clears throat> boards warn the casino if that's happened now. So not only do, do they trick people into falling for the gambler's fallacy, which is, wow, red's come up five times in a row. I bet red will come up again because this board likes red. Or the opposite, red's come up in five times in a row. It can't possibly come up again. Now it also warns them when a wheel actually is broken, which was a way that people used to make money in the olden days. But yeah. uh, I, I'm fascinated by the psychology of it, and it, all of Vegas is really able to succeed simply because people can't do math or, yeah. or can't do statistics. Because, uh-huh. because as we said before, arithmetic and statistics are actually completely different branches of thought. Exactly, and even probability and statistics are two completely different areas of math, and they're kind of grouped together. Whereas, statistics says something like, if you were to talk about the statistics of flipping a coin, you would say, okay, let's flip this coin a hundred times. Okay, it landed on heads 52 times, tails 48 times. Those are the statistics of the coin. And if you were to make assumption based on that, you would say it would land on heads 52% of the time and tails 48% of the time. Right. That would be from a statistics point of view. And that works very well if you're talking about like sports or economics or something. Whereas probability would say, okay, there's two different possible outcomes each equally likely to happen, so it would be 50% for each. I was just thinking about that maybe a week ago and realizing that's kind of interesting how they're grouped together, but they are different things. They are. No, that that's fascinating. I discovered that someone did a study but proved that the American quarter is actually biased towards one side. Interesting. It is not 50-50. It's something like 499 <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, you know, if you if you carry out the experiment to a million places, you'll find the bias. But for most practical purposes, it's a 50-50. But I thought that was this interesting. It would also probably vary more from quarter to quarter. That's true. And, and that would be such a difficult thing to analyze. It, it would be. And, you know, this this quarter has more finger oil on one side of it. Or, hey, this is the Idaho quarter and this is the Ohio quarter. Yeah, every quarter actually. And, and yeah. manufacturing defects in the quarters. Each quarter uh-huh. would have to have its own table created. So I think I think You could start safe. to get into things like, okay, this state has a longer name or it's right. in a year that takes up more surface area. Like, like yeah, 1988 takes up more surface area than 1911. Washington coin versus an Iowa coin. Right, or, or silver versus the, the, what we have now, which is copper clad with zinc. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's That's interesting. Stuff. I know something about you that I will share with the audience, is that you hold a world record. I do. And what is your world record for? It was 2012. I memorized and recited 2012 digits of a number called Tau. Uh, This was a fundraiser for my town library. We raised around $3,000. And uh, we had a whole event with different contests, raffles, magic shows. It's a great day. And I also got to learn about the Pi versus Tau debate. Tau is two times Pi. And it has its own letter, the Greek letter tau. And lots of mathematicians are starting to say that tau is 
tau should be the circle constant instead of pi. Tau isn't the actual value of pi, but 2 pi is a more practical and natural number, which we will talk about for a little bit. And this was a super cool thing to learn about and support through that effort. So backing up a little bit here, let's see. Uh, so pi is 3.14159, and you keep going literally forever. Yes. Tau would be two times that. So it would be 6.29 and then some 6. more. 6.28. 6.28. See, I can't do math. <laughs> 6.28, and then you could actually go on for quite a few digits. I could. Uh, uh, I don't remember it to that extent now. But so you did thousands of digits. Did you remember them iteratively, like we remember the alphabet, or did you do math to go that many digits? Technically, if you were to do math, you could go forever in theory, but the math to figure out something like that would... Which, uh, don't get me wrong, there are actually formulas that you can figure out pi and tau with mathematically, mm -hmm. and those, the nature of those formulas shows that they will go on forever and there is no repeating pattern in the number, but it's stuff like if you take 1 minus a third plus a fifth minus a seventh plus a ninth minus an eleventh plus a thirteenth going on forever, Take that, multiply it by 4, you get pi. Sure you do, okay. And there's a whole proof for that, and I think that's interesting on its own, but certainly not a way that you can calculate it mentally. Mm -hmm. Even You can't even do it with a calculator, but you, probably. You can't but, memorize thousands of digits yeah. either, or at least I can't. Uh, there's something called the major system, which is a method that you can use to turn numbers into words. Oh, yes. So you store them as words, and you can later retrieve them as numbers. It's basically assigning different digits to different consonant sounds. Then you can enter in vowels, and you end up with a word. So I would take that, and then this was something I learned about in a book called Moonwalking with Einstein. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's a great book. I can explain a little bit about it mm -hmm. if you want. But it was about a guy named Joshua Four, who was a newscaster, and he was at the U.S either U.S. or World Memory Championships. They actually have wow. a championship for that kind of thing where guys can memorize 2,000 digits in under an hour. It's crazy. But he was there, and he was interviewing them and asking, like, were you born with these abilities to memorize things? And they were all saying, no, no, these are all techniques that we learned and practiced. One of the guys said to him, Joshua Four, I'll train you for the next year and show you how all of it works if at the end of the year you go compete in the U.S. Memory Championship. <laughs> so he said, okay, I'll give it a try. And so the guy taught him all of the different techniques that you need to know for memorizing numbers, cards, poems, all different things. And he ended up going into the U.S. Memory Competition, and he won it. Wow. It's a really cool story. He talks about his personal experience as well as sharing some of the different techniques they use. And it's fascinating stuff that they do. I really recommend the book. Anyways, in one of the techniques he taught in the book was called the memory palace. This can be used for memorizing numbers, memorizing a grocery list, pretty much whatever you want. You basically take a place or a path that you know well. So you might take your house, for example. If you had a grocery list, let's say, mm -hmm. say the first thing was cheese, you say, okay, so you're at your front door, and you put an image of cheese there. You do something to make it wacky and silly so you'll remember it. Okay. 
uh, you can say if you had a pot there with flowers or something, you can say that there's cheese blossoms coming up. Something like that. Just okay. something silly. And you go into your, you enter your house in the living room is the first place you go. And you'd put uh, the next item on your list in the living room. And then you'd put the next item in the kitchen and the next item. And you'd go around the house with all of your grocery items. And then when you get to the grocery store, you just say, okay, what do I need? You go into your head and follow the path and you'll find all the groceries <laughs> that way. So it, it, it takes a little practice, but it works very well. And it's kind of fun to try to construct all those images. So I would take the numbers, turn them into words. Once I had words, I would take like three words or so and put them together into an image and I used my my middle school campus mm -hmm. to remember them. So I'd walk into the school, turn right, and I'd have the first image and the second image. And I think there were like 200-something images that it took. But I just would crank away, knock out like 150, 200 digits every week until I could get all of those images memorized. And that's wow. that's basically how that worked. This is like a like a brain hack that you're using a part of your brain that normally doesn't do math, yeah, and and making it remember numbers for you. It's almost like yeah, the language center of your brain, maybe, or or your navigational center. From the book, I think they were talking about they did some brain scans of the memory champions as they were memorizing a list of things, and they were surprised to find that the navigation section of the brain was busy at work there. <laughs> and for someone who doesn't know what kinds of methods they're using, that sounds kind of strange, but that's how you have to do it. All right, so so back to tau, this number here. So some of the formulas we learn in, in early school, which I've probably forgotten, is uh, there's 2 pi r, mm -hmm. and, well, let's just stick with 2 pi r. So you're saying that 2 pi r would simply become, an r is radius, tau r. Exactly. And since that little bit of math right there is the basis for much bigger math, we would actually be simplifying large equations by substituting tau uh, for pi. Yeah. If you open most uh, physics or high-level math textbooks, you will find that uh, there tends to be, many, not all, but many, many formulas where pi has a 2 next to it. And if you... Just replace that with tau. That becomes one less symbol you have to write, and that can make things a little more convenient. Uh, it also is a much more natural explanation of the circle. For instance, we were talking about 2 pi r. Mm -hmm. You would say, when you think, people also will write that as pi d, with d being the diameter. Sure. And you might say, okay, well, why can't you just use the diameter instead of the radius? It's the same thing, and you'll end up with the formula one-half tau d, like they're contradicting each other. But if you think about the reasons why you use a circle, when you are constructing a circle, you're saying something like, okay, I'm at my house, I want to find a restaurant to go eat at that's within 20 miles of my house. You're drawing a circle based on a radius of 20 miles. True. That's how you think about a circle, whether in reality or even in mathematics you're defining the circle based on its radius and once you have the radius you come to the number tau if you want to come to the number pi you have to first say okay the diameter is twice that radius okay now we take half the other constant and 
you end up with two pi r, which there are figures, two-dimensional figures, who have a constant diameter, mm -hmm. but not a constant radius. So you have to take extra steps in defining the figure before you can define the number pi, whereas tau is just, you have a radius, you have tau. I think you just blew my mind. I think there's a coin, actually. Not an American coin, from, I think it's shaped similar to a heptagon, which is a seven-sided standard seven-sided figure. Oh, sure. Okay, yes. That uh, if you measure the diameter at any point, yeah, I think that it would stay constant, whereas the radius would change as you go around. If you're going up to a point, that would be less, more than going up to an edge. All right, you've sold me. I'm happy to start using Tau now. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, that that example alone uh, makes sense to me, and I, I know a, a, there are people who are defending pi. Because yes, there, there are. are. But uh, so Piists and Taoists. <laughs> why can't we all get along? Why can't we use both pi and tau? There's the Tau Manifesto by guy Michael Hartle, where he lays out all of the arguments for tau in great detail, and. I think does a very good job of explaining them. There's also a video by Vi Hart. I met her at a conference in Atlanta. She's a really great person and does some really great stuff. She has a video on the Pi versus Tau argument and also shows some of the very interesting aspects of it. She taught me how to make a hexaflexagon, although she did not teach me yeah. how to solve it. <laughs> I have I have a hexaflexagon and there's one pattern I can't get to, and yeah. I, I don't know why I've been trying forever. So all right, so tau wins. I'll take your word for it. But it's interesting to me that math mathematicians who are dealing with math, you know, math yes. is hard. There's no two plus two is always four. There's no room for any disagreement, but there is. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I find super interesting about math is mathematical proofs which is basically saying why things work. And I talk about it a bit in my show now. I'll say something like, uh, I'll actually show you something. You, you've probably heard of this, but think of, any, think of any number from 1 to 10. Okay. Now multiply that by 2. Okay. Now add 10. Okay. Now divide by 2. Okay. And now subtract your original number. Okay. So you're thinking of the number five. I am. And that's that's something I've been doing in my show now. I'll say stand up if you're thinking of the number five. The whole audience stands up. And it's kind of a cool visual for me because I'm looking at them. And those but, that don't stand up can't do arithmetic. <laughs> exactly. You're singling them out. But then I'll go into and I show, and it's an algebraic proof, but I've shown it to seven, eight-year-old audiences, and it's very understandable because algebra is basically just taking an unknown quantity and defining it with a letter and you start to get more advanced with that but this is the basic principle of algebra you take the number you started with and you say okay let's call that the letter n mm -hmm. for example so then i said multiply by 2 that's 2n and you add 10 and that's 2n plus 10 yeah and when you divide by 2 2n divided by 2 is n, 10 divided by 2 is 5, so you have n plus 5, and then you subtract your original number, right. your original number is n, n plus 5 minus n, the n's cancel, you get 5. 
So that shows for any number n you start with, doesn't even have to be from 1 to 10, you'll get the number 5. That's one of the things I find the most interesting about mathematics, the, the idea that you can definitively say that something is possible or impossible. And on the other hand, there's the pi versus tau argument, which I love the concept so much that there's you can get a really good conversation going <laughs> about a mathematical topic, and you can even get a good debate going on something like that, because there are, although I tend to lean towards the Tau side, there are very good arguments coming from the people in support of using pi. They, they actually have a whole pi manifesto where they lay out all of their arguments, and I read through it, and I was starting to wonder, okay, <laughs> what's our response? And I found out what our response is, and, but it's a very good conversation to get started, and there's some very good math behind both viewpoints. There's this, this meme going around on Facebook now. It's like, yep, another day where I didn't use algebra. You know, <laughs> and it's supposed to be a, a joke that we waste our time in school learning algebra because you'll never, ever, ever use it. And I, like, you're crazy. Algebra is like magic. You can start with an unknown and come up with the answer without adding any new information. Yeah. Algebra, despite my problems with arithmetic, which I've demonstrated so amply in the show, I think algebra is amazing. And I do use it fairly often. Like if I have to figure out how much wood to get or... Uh, no, I, just, I can't think of it. There's so many different ways I use it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing about education of math, and especially since I've been seeing all of the rants about how good or how bad Common Core is. I was wondering and if that was going to come up. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have my opinions on all of that. I actually did a four-month-long research project in middle school. We had to choose some issue in America or in the world, and basically just go and investigate it, learn as much as we can, do an interview, write a research paper, make a promo, whole bunch of stuff. And it was a great experience, but I was able to convince a couple of my friends in my group to do math education. They have not been priorities in this country like they were in the 50s and 60s. And Common Core is trying to fix that. And the difficulty that people are having with it is that, A, it's not what they were taught. Right. And also, teachers weren't trained this way, as, right. were, as were not parents. So when you just throw a bunch of standards at them, they can't then go and teach like that. There's a lot of new things they're trying to do, but the base of what they are trying to do is get you thinking about math correctly, <laughs> because there's, I mean, we said there's one answer to every problem, 2 plus 2 is always 4, but there's a bunch of different ways that you can solve any given problem. Right. And I saw an article where they were talking about trying to subtract 17 from 100 or something, they said, okay, so we do 17 plus 3 is 20, plus 10 plus 10 plus 10. And they got up, they did plus 80 is 100. So it would be 80 plus 3, which is 83, which is correct. That's correct. And people complained about that. And the thing is, if you're at the store and the clerk says it's $17 and you give them a $100 bill, you want to figure out how much change you're getting back. Right you're going to do 17 plus 3 is 20 plus 80 is 100 so 83 that's we've learned over the years after we got out of school 
okay, this is the easier way to do the subtraction. So they're just teaching now, okay, this is how you can do it. They are also teaching the method that we all learn in school, which is you would turn the zero into a 10, carry over, turn the other zero into a nine, go through this process, and you get the same answer. But that's two different ways you can approach the problem and get the same answer. Well, now no. you can say which one is easier. I have kids. My kids are a little bit older than yours. And I, when they were in you know, elementary school learning math, the teacher sent home a note saying, do not help your kids with math. And I thought, well, that's crazy. What do you mean don't help my kids with math? And then I looked at the math, and I didn't know what they were doing. It was all these, uh, what they call them, math families or number families or something? Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I was, I, you know, I knew how to do long division. Uh -huh. I don't think my kids ever learned long division because that isn't how math is done anymore. And the example you gave, I think, is great because my generation and, and many generations before were always taught you have to have a pencil and paper to do math. Exactly. You cannot trust your brain to do math. That was drilled into us. That's why, I, that's why I get paid to do my show. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now, I think, having looked a little bit into Common Core, and I do not pretend to understand it, oh, this isn't teaching a skill. This is giving knowledge about how numbers work. Exactly. And then the skill comes. And uh, so I think it's that's, better. Yeah. That's exactly what they're trying to do, and I think that's the direction we have to be moving in to get kids thinking correctly about numbers and math. As you all know, the World Cup was this summer, and there's actually a lot of mathematics in there, particularly in the U.S. versus Germany game at the end of, towards the end of the preliminary rounds, because if you looked at our division at that time, Germany needed to either win or tie to advance, and U.S. needed to either win or tie to advance. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if U.S. and Germany tied, then they would advance, and we were playing each other. So, <laughs> technically, if we just worked out, okay, let's both tie, <laughs> and we'd both advance. <laughs> That's a very, very interesting thing. This is game theory. Yes. This is an area we haven't really hit on yet. Right. Game theory is kind of a branch of probability, but it's also a little more geared towards situations like this, where probability wouldn't quite fare as well. And the situation that we were put in is very similar to a classic game theory problem that's called the Prisoner's Dilemma. I, I don't know if you've heard of it. Up. I have, yes. It is, uh, it is exactly that. Yeah. The Prisoner's Dilemma, if you haven't heard of it, is basically... You have two people who are being tried for some crime and that they did together, and they're going to be interviewed separately by the police. You, as an individual, have two options. You can either say that you did it or you can say that you did not do it. And if both of you say you didn't do it, then they won't have enough evidence to put you in jail, so they'll just put you in jail for a little bit and then let you go. Whereas if you both say you did do it, then you'd be put in jail for a very long time because you both did a crime. If you said that you did it, but your other guy said that he didn't do it, then they'd know he was lying. So they'd actually let you go without any jail time as kind of thank you for ratting him out. And he would have to be in jail for the rest of his life. That's basically what the problem is. Mm -hmm. If you look at it in a matrix or table, you can see that if you say that you did it, then you'll either 
end up in jail for no time or end up in jail for quite a bit of time. Whereas if you say you don't do it, you'll either end up in jail for the rest of your life or for a short period of time. Right. So you think about, well, you can cooperate with the other guy and say we didn't do it. But then the other guy might think, oh, well, if I just say we did do it, then I'll be out in no time. I should do that. And then that it starts getting into a big conflict. Right. And there's lots of game theory analysis on that. But this is very similar to the situation we just had, because you're saying, okay, we're the United States, then we could either not play to win or we could play to win. If we don't play to win, then we would either then we would either tie if Germany chose not to play to win and we would advance, or we would get destroyed and possibly not advance. Whereas if we played to win, then we would either if they didn't play to win, we might actually beat Germany, or if they played to win, then it would be a pretty tough match, but there's a chance that we could come out of that with a better situation than if we were just sitting on the field <laughs> and not really going for it. This starts to get into game theory of sportsmanship, where you're saying if we chose not to play to win, and Germany chose not to, and we tied, there would be a lot of criticism coming in both directions. For a country like America, who is just getting a budding soccer fan base, and especially our situation in the world with lots of criticism already, having this kind of thing on our resume would not be great, as well as the downfall in the actual match. That's what so. I like about game theory. It's it's taking math and applying it to the real world, whereas, you know, soccer is team A versus team B. Well, no, in the real world, there's politics. Yeah. There's there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And game theory yeah. very carefully defines what your goal is. Yeah. Your goal isn't actually to win the game. It's to make soccer more popular or to make more money for each of the players. I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of different uh-huh. goals you could have. And they're not necessarily in line with the stated goals of winning. (laughs) Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. There was a great, great game in, it was in the Shell Cup, which is a Caribbean tournament. And they had an interesting rule in that tournament called the Golden Goal, where if you go into extra time, this is after 90 minutes if both teams are tied, Mm -hmm. you go into extra time. And if one of the teams scores a goal in extra time, then they do it like sudden death style where the game stops right then. Yeah. And they also awarded that team two points for the goal. Oh. This is an interesting rule. And I think it was probably only for that tournament that they did this. And there was a game that was Barbados against Grenada. Barbados had to win by two goals or more to advance. And if they didn't, then I think Grenada would have advanced in the tournament. Oh. So... Barbados was up two to nothing for most of the game, and then around like the eighty-third minute, Grenada scored. So it's two to one. Barbados is trying to score. They're starting to realize that they're probably not going to be able to pull it off, and so one of their strikers decides to just go back, and he scores an own goal. So now it's two to two, and now they're going to go into extra time. And if Barbados can score an extra time, then they'll get the two goals. The game will stop, and they'll move on. So it was better for them to have tied at the end of the 90 minutes than for them to have one goal up. Now, Grenada realizes this and sees, okay, if we go (laughs) score on either goal, 
then we'll be able to move on. <laughs> if they lose by one, it doesn't matter. And Barbados needs to have the tie to go into extra time. So they get the ball, and Grenada starts dribbling back towards their goal, and Barbados sprints over and starts defending both goals simultaneously <laughs> while Grenada's trying to score on both goals simultaneously. It's one of the craziest soccer matches in history, probably. They ended up, Barbados was able to hold them off, and after the 90 minutes, they scored the two points and moved on. But they had to change some rules after that. (laughs) That's a great story. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in soccer, and some cool game theory as well. I get the idea that game theory, it's not well-developed yet. It's like we're just starting to understand yeah, this stuff. Yeah, it's a very recent area of math, and it's so fascinating. I mean, that just shows that math can be curious. I'm glad there are people like you here who are helping to bring the wonders of math to everybody, even people like me who struggle with simple arithmetic. Thank you. Do you have any shows coming up? It's a little tougher being at school, but I do book school shows in my break, and I also go to libraries over the summer and breaks, and anyone out there who needs entertainment at their school or library, I'm here. Well, we will have links to Ethan's website in the show notes, and he's based in southern Connecticut, to give you an idea, but that means that New York is certainly within range if somebody wanted to have you come by for an afternoon. Yep. Yeah, it's very good. And I have seen Ethan perform many times, and he has performed at the College of Curiosity. Ethan, thank you very much for joining us on the Weekly Curio. It was wonderful having you here. Thanks for having me.